Amen. Well, thank you for that. A couple of you have asked, and uh, yes, the temporary stage is still coming. So if you think of if you think of the basketball hoop being dropped, uh, the out of bounds line is right here where the altar is, and so the the permanent part. This is the permanent part. We're not going to ever move this. The permanent part is well out of bounds, and so the temporary stage will go inbounds, and that will be here. Uh, we hope to be we hope to be using it soon. And uh, I don't want to. I know Bill's watching. Hey, Bill, I don't want to rush you, but we'll be using it soon, and we're really looking forward to using it. So, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you turn with me to Lamentations chapter one? Lamentations, actually, chapter two. I was going to talk about one. Um, got ahead of myself a little bit. So we're in Lamentations chapter two. Did you did you recognize what we sang? Death is defeated. The king is alive. Amen. That is really, really good news. And we're still waiting for the king to assert his rule and make it so that we can feel that that is true. To, to have that be true, like people still die and people still get buried. And there is still pain in the world. So when we read in Lamentations about how God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And death will be no more. And there will be neither mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Those days are coming, but they are not here yet. While we wait, I see two types of pain. So if we can go to the next slide, there are two types of pain up there, and really, I think that you, you know this from experience. There's the kind of pain that is not predictable, like John chapter 9 talks about, about how there's a man born blind, and some people ask Jesus, so did that guy sin? And God foreknew that he would sin, and so he cursed him with blindness? Like, did he even have a chance then? Or did God already know that he was going to sin before he was born? Is that what happened? Or did his parents sin, and so God unfairly punished the kid? But which happened? Did, did God foreknow that he would freely choose to sin, or did his parents sin? Which, which was it, Jesus? And Jesus says the world is more complicated than that. Okay? It's not predictable. Not predictable. There's other kinds of sin, or, or just pain in general, just pain in general that is highly predictable. So when you come through college, and you're like, yay, I'm done with college, and you get your first bill, and you realize you owe $100,000 in student loans. And you're like, how did this happen? How? How did I get here? How can this happen? Well, we can empathize with that. Like, we can understand that, we can have compassion on that, but you have to admit, there were flags along the way. You have to admit, you, you probably could have seen that coming. Like, it hurts, but maybe it, it was predictable. Okay, so, so think of, like, a rare form of cancer that stumps the doctors. Not predictable. Nobody saw that coming. 
versus you start running with kids that always get in trouble, and then you start getting in trouble. And you're like, how did this happen? Well, there were flags. And if you're honest, you decided not to see them. There's predictable pain and there's not predictable pain. There, there's stuff you can't see coming, there's stuff you can't see coming. Like a freak accident sometimes just happens. And you're scratching your head wondering what, what happened? How did, what happened with that? Not predictable. On the other hand, on the other hand, sometimes you get served divorce papers. And you sit there and you go, how did this happen? How did I get here? But if, but if, you're, if you're honest, there were flags back when you were dating that you just decided not to see sometimes. Not for everyone. But for some people, it's like you just didn't want to see it. Maybe your marriage has been in trouble for a long time, and, and we've just been ignoring it and ignoring it and ignoring it. So there's two kinds of pain. There's the predictable kind, there's the not predictable kind, and then there's the predictable kind. And my question for you is, what kind is in Lamentations? So as we, yeah, predictable. Kent's already ready. He's, he knows the answer. So as we read through this, it's uh, going to be a test. Which one are we lamenting? Predictable pain or not predictable pain? And my, my next question for you, and this is like, this is how this meets you in your life. Any red flags in your life? Any red flags you need to be paying attention to? Anything you're ignoring? Here we are in Lamentations chapter 2. How the Lord, in his anger, has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. Hey, is that the Babylonians that did that? No, the, Lo the Lord may be using the Babylonians, but who did it? The Lord. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down. Watch for this down, down, down language as we go. As the Lord crushes them and brings them down. It's going to be really hard to read, by the way. Kind of like how hard it was to read last week. This is, it's going to feel really long as we go through this. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not rem remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Probably the splendor of Israel and the footstool is the temple. How he, the Lord would sit in heaven and put his feet on the temple, and the temple would connect heaven and earth, and he has cast it down. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy. You can see behind me, the Hebrew word for mercy. And I just want to ask, is that true? That the Lord swallowed up Israel without mercy? Is that true? As we read, it's going to sound like it. The poet is going to make the case that God crushed them, brought them down, 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 with no mercy at all. Is that true? 
Let's keep reading. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, oh, that's a tough word. In his wrath, he has broken down. There's that down, down, down language. He has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down, there it is again, that down, down, down language. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. Remember my affliction and my wandering. Oh, I'm sorry, I've turned too many pages there. So he has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. Verse 4, he has bent his bow like an enemy. In case I forget to say it later on, this is God acting like an enemy, shooting at them. That's what the poet is saying. That's also how it ends in verse 22. That God is like an enemy, become like an enemy to them. With his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. God did this. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. He has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. That's, that's everybody and that's everything the Lord has spurned and is crushing. Verse 7, the Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls and her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. So the bad guys are in the sanctuary where they aren't supposed to be having a party. And God seems to be just fine with this. Verse 8, the Lord determined to lay... That's that down, down, down language. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He exercised, he's, the poet is saying, he exercised no self-control. He just destroyed us. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together because he destroyed everything. Verse 9. Her gates have sunk into the ground. That's that down, down, down language. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations, and the law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They're reduced to sitting and that's all they can do is just sit there because they're exhaustion from the pain. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. And the young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground as they go down, down, down. You notice the theme that God is the one that did this. That God brought them down down and down. 
Now let me ask you, did God do this without pity? Was there no mercy ever? When God reveals himself to Moses and God says that he is merciful? Is that not true? Did God make an exception here and usually he's merciful, but in this case he's not? I'd like you to read with me. Now, if you aren't awesome at navigating your Bible quickly, don't bother turning there and just make a note. But I'm going to read for you from 2 Chronicles verse, chapter 36. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers... Okay, so God, this is a summary of everything that went wrong in Israel. Right before the end of the Old Testament, Chronicles is there telling us what went wrong. This is a second, this is, there's only a couple verses left in 2 Chronicles. And this is like a summary statement of everything that went wrong. It says, God warned them and warned them and warned them with his messengers. Why? Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place he did have mercy and the mercy he had on them was shown by warning them again and again and again what would happen if they didn't repent the Lord did have mercy and he warned them and warned them and warned them But in verse 16 we read, But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. What happened? What happened was they refused the mercy that God was offering them. They refused to repent. They refused to turn to the Lord. And so all that was left for them was wrath. So that's, that's what happened in verses 1 through 10. That's why we are there. So now we're in verse 11 of Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping and my stomach churns. My boil, my bile, like your, the bile is what's in your stomach. I remember throwing up bile one time when I was running a long ways on an empty stomach, and I just can't think of anything worse. Well, maybe there's a few things, but throwing up bile is really, really bad, really awful. I don't recommend it. But this, the Jeremiah here, the poet that wrote Lamentations, is saying, when I think about what God did to his people, I throw up bile. It's so bad. It makes me sick to my stomach. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine, as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom, as, as they die while their moms are holding them. Like I get this sick, terrible feeling in my stomach that I can't hold down. What can I say to you? What, to what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you? 
that I may comfort you, O daughter of Zion, for your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They're not the ones to heal you because they're not telling you the truth. They have not exposed your iniquity nor to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. Remember, part of the pain, part of the pain for them was not just the devastation and the terrible things that happened to them, but also the celebration and how happy and the mockery of the people that were around them. Verse 17, so the Lord has done what he purposed. Okay. Okay, hold on. Read about this stomach-turning horror that happened to Israel. And the author is asking, did God plan this? Did he plan this? Did God premeditate this? Is this really what God wanted? Doesn't that make it worse or even more unthinkable that God planned this? The Lord has done what he purposed and he has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of daughter of Zion, let tears stream down in like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. As you see kids starving to death and you ask, could the Lord have planned this for his holy city, for his people? Did God plan this? Again, if you're not quick at turning in your Bible, stay in Lamentations 1 and just make a note. But if you are quick at it, you can turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah is at the potter's house, where, of course, the potter is making pots. And he's telling the people, disaster is coming. Disaster is coming. The Lord is about to judge. He's forming his plan against you like a potter would make a pot. And clay, as it hardens, his plan is hardening. This is what Jeremiah is saying here visually with a clay pot. So verse 11, we pick it up. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Did God plan this? 
Well, he sure did, but he warned them ahead of time and said, hey, hey, it doesn't have to go this way. I'm making a plan against you that I don't like. I'm making a plan against you that you really, really won't like. So please repent. Please, so that it doesn't have to go this way. Please change. Please turn. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping a disaster against you like you'd shape a clay pot. It's changeable, but it's hardening. Devising a plan against you. Return, like change, like turn. Turn everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But what do they say in verse 12? Here's what they say in verse 12. But they say, this is vain. We're not doing that. We will follow our own plans. And will everyone act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart? When you read the horror, horror in Lamentations 2, and it's going to get worse. Like it is really hard to finish. And you see that God planned this. What you have to say is God gave them plenty of warning. He was pleading with them saying, I don't want it to go this way. And I am planning this if you don't repent. This is the plan if you don't repent. This is the plan if you don't change. This is the plan if you don't return. And they refuse to return. And they refuse to return. And they refuse to repent. And so God carried out the plan that he said he would carry out. Lamentations chapter 2 verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 20. Chapter 2 verse 20. As we finish it. Look, O Lord, and see with whom you have dealt thus. Like we're your chosen people. How, how can this happen? Now look, before I read this next part, I just want you to know, I would rather read about hell than this next part. The only reason I'm reading this is that it is in the Bible. This is the source material, and I'm not better than the source material, so I'm going to read the source material. But if I could avoid this, I would. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? As their Jerusalem is under siege for 18 months, and people go crazy with starvation, and they've been turning from God and turning from God and turning from God, and they end up doing crazier and crazier and more and more evil things. This is where they land. Should a priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day. My terror is on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, one more, one more passage from the past. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter eight, chapter 28. 
Deuteronomy chapter 28, there, there are, this is written like a thousand years before the book of Lamentations. And it's written to the people to tell them, to encourage them to keep the law. And at one point it tells them what the blessings will be if they keep the law. You see that in the beginning of chapter 28. And then you see the cursings that will happen if they don't keep the law. You see that in the second half of 28. So in 28, verse 52, we read about what will happen. These are the curses that will happen if they don't keep the law. They shall besiege you in all your towns. This is what happened in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came in and besieged them. Until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your lands which the Lord has given you. Verse 53, here's the horror of it. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you. In the siege and all the distress in which the enemies shall distress you. Here's what we have to say. God warned them. He warned them. Now when we started out in this Dark Clouds Deep Mercy series, we learned about how to lament. And remember the four steps of lament as we worked our way up. We said turn to God, complain to God, tell God what's wrong, ask for help. And then trust. And we said trust is the goal of lament. That, that was how to lament. Right now what we're doing is we're learning from lament. Remember last week we showed a picture of the little black box, the voice recorder that we said would go on an airplane. And, and we said after an airplane crash, what you would do is you'd go and you'd find that voice recorder and you'd try to figure out what went wrong so that you could learn from it. So that you could learn from it. And from the cries of lamentations, we are learning, we learn in chapter 1, God punishes sin. We're learning here in chapter 2 that God had warned them. He, he had warned them. Like, like, this may be unspeakable. It may be completely unspeakable where you're like, I, I don't even think that should be read in church. And I could hear you make your case for that. But what you have to say is, yes, it's unspeakable, but it should have been predictable. They should have seen it coming. It may be unfathomable, and it may be like such a hard thing. You're like, how could God allow this in his moral universe? How could God even permit something like this? How could God predict something like, how could God, okay, you can ask that question, and that's a good question to wrestle with, and I, I don't know if I can fully explain God's nature, and then how he would use the Babylonians to bring about this kind of wrath on people. I mean, I, I don't know if I can fully understand all of that, but what we have to say is that he warned them over and over and over and over that this is what would happen. They could never say they were not warned. You and I can never say we were not warned. 
good news is, Lamentations is not the last word. The good news is that this is not where the Old Testament ends. Even the Old Testament. I mean, 70 years later, after the Babylonians come in and lay siege in er, in, uh, 586, they lay siege for 18 months. 587, they come in and lay siege for 18 months. 586, the temple and everything is finally, utterly, terribly, horrifically destroyed. Seventy years later, they come back to the land. The remnant comes back to the land. And, and you can read about them trying to rebuild the walls and rebuild their place of worship and trying to rebuild. But they're back in the land and they're rebuilding. And they, they're able to stay in the land. And eventually, Alexander the Great crum, comes through and they're able to stay in the land. Then his generals fight over the promised land, but they're, they're still in the land. Then the Romans come in and the promised land, but his people are still in the land. They're still in the land. And eventually a young prophet comes to them when they're mad about Rome being in charge and them not being in charge. And they want to overthrow Rome. And the young prophet comes to them and says, you have bigger problems than Rome. Rome's not the enemy you should be worried about. And he starts telling them stuff they don't want to hear, like that they need to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And they say to him things like, shut up or we're going to kill you. And he won't shut up. And he keeps preaching to them and preaching to them and preaching to them about how they should repent. And they make plans to kill him. So he tells them a story about a rich man that planted a vineyard. And put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. This is Israel's story that he is retelling for them again. And he says that the time came when the owner sent his servant to the tenants to get some fruit from the vineyard. And he's talking now about the fruit of repentance that God wants from his people. So the owner sends a servant to get some fruit from the vineyard that he had that he had made. And this is what the people that stand for Jerusalem, this is what they do. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And they sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. What's Jesus doing? He's telling them their story. He's telling them what they've always done to the prophets. This is what you've always done to the prophets. Time and time again, God has come to you demanding repentance. And when he comes to you demanding repentance, you kill the messenger. So he says. He had one other. A beloved son. And what he should have done was put the son in charge of an enemy, or in charge of an army, and gone in and slaughtered the wicked tenants. That's what he should have done. But what does he do? He gives them one more chance. He gives them one more chance. This is their last chance. He still had one other, a beloved son, and he finally he sent them to him to them, saying, They will respect 
my son. Those of you that know the story, what do they do? They kill the beloved son. Now what's left? Well, first, I just want you to see that what happened to the beloved son was what should have happened to the tenants. Because what happened to Jesus is what should have happened to us. That Jesus bore his own wrath. That Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. That Jesus took the punishment for all of our sin onto himself, dying in our place. So that he could offer us the forgiveness of sins. What you have to say is, well, God warned them. But you also have to say, he still loved them. And he's still showing mercy to them, sending his beloved son to warn them one last time to repent. Now after they kill the beloved son and they stay on, set in their ways, well then, then 70 AD happens and the temple is destroyed again just like it was in 587 BC. Siege is laid again, just like it was in 587 or 586 BC. And history repeats itself because the people would not listen. But what you need to know is that these stories are not just in here because someone thought it would be a good idea to write them down. They're in here to warn us. They're in here so that we learn the lesson from history, so that we learn the lesson that God is teaching us, and we repent, that we turn to God, that we not repeat their mistakes. So here's my question. This is the one we started with. Any red flags? Any red flags? What we're all tempted to do is think about the red flags for our nation. We all think the path we're on. How many more warnings are we going to get? Here's what I would plead with you. Don't just ask that question. Don't just say, well, those proud people over there, they're in big trouble. But I'm not proud. I'm so glad I'm not as proud as them. Not a safe way to read the Bible, friend. Boy, they've been ignoring red flags all their life. I'm way more humble than that. Not a safe way to read the Bible. Much better to read the Bible and say, that's really terrifying. They ignored red flags their whole life. Am I ignoring any red flags?
The beloved Son came so that we could be saved from the wrath of God. He bore the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to bear it. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven. Receive the forgiveness of your sin by trusting him as your Lord. That means saying to him, hallowed be your name, not my name. Your kingdom come, not my kingdom come. Your will be done, not my will be done. That means trusting him as your Lord. That means saying, I give it all to you. I obey you with everything. And it means trusting him as your Savior, saying, I can't save myself from my own sins. If God won't save me from his wrath, no one can. If God won't save me from my sin, I, sure, I certainly can't. Only God can save me from this sin. Trust him as your Lord and trust him as your Savior. And? I mean, that's the first thing. Do that first. And if you want to talk to somebody about that, I would love to talk to you about that. Do we have this time set aside while we discuss the the teaching and the, and the lamentations too. I'd love to talk to you about that during that time. The next thing is, I, you're busy. And you run from one thing to the next all day long. And in the times when you're not busy, it's easy to be on your phone keeping your mind busy. You have just a second here. Are there any red flags? Anything you're ignoring? You know, all throughout the book of Acts, repentance is preached. And when you see people repent, what do you see? You see joy. You see joy. Because, because listen, What's more cleansing than confession? What's more freeing than forgiveness? What's more refreshing than repentance? What's, what's better than turning to God and finding forgiveness for your sins? What's better than turning to God and saying, Lord, you, I need you to take all of this. Turn to him. Give it to him. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you pull us towards yourself during this season of uh, worship while we sing and then we receive the Lord's Supper and then we sing again. Lord, pull us towards yourself. We pray as we reflect on you um, and your sacrifice for our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to use this time, <clears throat> excuse me, for us just to lament 
outwardly in song together. You know, as Pastor is saying continuously and over over again, this is a time for us to turn towards God and just to acknowledge, you know, the circumstances that have come into our lives that probably something we did not want, something we didn't expect, but we are going to learn just to wait for God to show his goodness through that. And that as, you know, we are waiting, we have this opportunity again just to express maybe, you know, our, our griefs and our disappointments, but we're also expressing our, our trust and our love to him as we, again, just wait for him to show his goodness to us and we choose to praise. Will you stand as we sing?
The Lord's Supper is something we do to remember.